there right now. It is not a scientific doubt, not atheism, not pantheism, not agnosticism that in our day and in this land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is a proud, sensuous, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity. The pastor that wrote uh, these words was making a statement He's making a statement that all of the, uh, the isms, uh, atheism, agnosticism, liberalism, all of these things that are out there that we often talk a lot about as being very destructive are ultimately not our greatest enemies. Greatest enemies are, are pride and selfishness in ourselves. And the light of the gospel is, is not going out um, in our communities because of our own pride and because of our own selfishness more than it is because of of what is going on out there. This pastor wrote this in 1890, and what he said then I think is only more true uh, today. And so what I want to do this morning through God's Word is open our eyes to three of the demands of the Gospel uh, that I think will help us to become... Uh, less selfish, that will help us to become the kind of people that have a crazy and outrageous love for Jesus Christ. Uh, Today is week four in our Crazy Love series, and if you need a reminder on what that is, or perhaps um, you're visiting today, uh, the the, the premise behind this 10-week series of Crazy Love is this. It it, it is the, the reality that while we were still sinners... God loved us so much that instead of of punishing us, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us, who was raised from the dead. Our sin was nailed to that cross. And as a result, we have peace in this life. We have the availability for peace in this life that surpasses all understanding. We have a home a a future home in heaven with Christ forever and ever, where even our desires will be perfected, our bodies will be perfected, Uh, we will be with each other, worshiping our king. Uh, We won't be in a democracy, we'll be in a a monarchy where where the king of kings who loves us is going to be there and reigning. And the premise of, of this series, Crazy Love, is that if these things are true, we should have an outrageous and beautiful love for God and passion for Him. But as this pastor said, we are often selfish and comfortable and full of pride. And so as we look at ourselves, we recognize that as individuals and at churches, we are often lukewarm. And so what I want to do for for just a moment here before we get into God's Word is, is to put some some diagnostic questions uh, on the screen. And, and my prayer is that as, as we uh, read each one of these, that each of us would be thinking about uh, why it is, perhaps, if you are in this situation, that you are not more and more in, in a, involved in this crazy, outrageous relationship with Jesus Christ in a daily way where his love is just pouring out of your life. Let's walk through some of these uh, questions. Uh, Do you give money to the church 
missions and the poor as long as it doesn't impinge on your standard of living? Do you give only when you have extra and it is easy and safe? Do you tend to choose what is popular over what is right when there is a conflict? Do you desire to fit in both at church and outside the church? Do you care more about what people think of your actions than what God thinks of your inner thoughts? Do you avoid sin primarily to please someone other than Christ? And by this I mean do we avoid sin perhaps to please our parents or a spouse or a friend or someone that would be expecting that of us rather than out of a love for God? Are you moved by stories about people who do radical things for Jesus yet fail to follow their example in your own way, in your own setting, in your own stage of life? Do you avoid sharing your faith with your neighbors, coworkers, and friends? Do you fear their rejection or how they might think of you after you tell them about Jesus? Do you love others in a way that looks exemplary, but in reality you are networking? And loving only those who will bring you emotional, physical, or financial, or spiritual benefit. Do you think about life on earth much more than life in eternity? If you're like me, the answer yes to more than one of these questions. And to the degree that we answer uh, yes to these questions is to the degree that we are lukewarm and are not living the kind of lives that that perhaps we have at some point in the past in our Christian life, whether it was last week or whether it was 30 years ago. And my prayer is that this morning that the Word of God will help us to just explode and to move into a, a relationship, perhaps one that you've never had or perhaps one that you've had previously, but you've just been, been in this lukewarmness. So we're going to look at three demands of the Gospel. My prayer is that they're going to help us to love him very much. Uh, let's bow our heads before we get into God's word uh, this morning. Father, we confess to you that we are often lukewarm. And instead of looking within ourselves at our pride, at our selfishness, at our comforts, we often point fingers to the isms and the things in this world that are not pleasing to you But ultimately, God, you have entrusted us with the gospel to live it out. And Father, I pray today that that this entire service, including this passage that we're going to look at, would would serve to move us, Father, from where we were when we walked in this morning to where you would have us be this afternoon and this week. And I pray that we would be the kind of people who are living outrageous lives, loving Jesus Christ, thinking of him often, saturated with his word, taking risks for for his sake, not for our own. And we pray that you would help us to do that as we look at this passage today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles, please, to uh, Luke chapter 9 is is where we are in this week 4 of 10 in this Crazy Love series. It's on page 867 in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. If you uh, don't have a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to to uh, take one of those out and turn it to page 867. would also encourage you to be um, 
in a small group this week. We have about six of them a meeting. There's brochures on the table in the back where you can talk about uh, what, what we're going to deal with this morning in, uh, in a more specific way with, with other people who love, who love God. A couple of those groups are meeting today. So pick one of those up. But Luke chapter 9 is where we are. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 18. Uh, The sermon today is really coming out of mostly verse 23, but let me begin reading at verse 18 and, and make some comments, and then we'll look at these three demands of the gospel. Luke 9 and verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, some say the Baptist, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Let me pause here for just a moment. Uh, you know, I, I, you, I don't know when you read about Peter in the Gospels if it brings a smile to your face because we associate with Peter's kind of up and downness in his walk with Christ. Here he is, uh, notice back in verse 18, Jesus is praying in private with his disciples and and, and Peter is quick to proclaim that he is the Christ of God. And if we had time and we we flip forward a few more chapters, we would see Peter uh, denying Christ uh, several times, three times to be specific. And I think Peter is is a lot like us. Uh, Peter uh, would answer some of these questions differently Uh, just as we would in different phases of our lives. And so behind that, I'm ultimately encouraged because I see the grace of God. And it's not normal for Christians to totally always be outrageously in love with God, but he calls us to that. That's part of why we gather. That's part of why we meet, why we have services like this to to renew us and to bring us back to to a place where we we have a heart for him. So I'm, I'm encouraged by Peter. We see him professing Christ here. Look at verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Now, this is the classic passage on the importance of context in studying the Bible. Do you see what verse 21 is saying? Jesus is strictly warning them not, for them not to tell anyone that he is the Christ. Of course, primarily the exact opposite of that is the primary message of the New Testament. We've been given this commission, this mandate to go and tell the gospel. But here Jesus is telling them not to tell the people. And I think the reason for this is last night in our our family devotions was one of the passages we're reading where Jesus is constantly being swarmed and pressed by people to where he is not even able to minister. And so we see warnings throughout the gospel of, of, uh, of not going and telling people or not doing these things. And you know, th- th- this, this reminds me of, of the three rules of, of Bible interpretation. Context, context, context. We have to understand uh, the context here. You guys, you guys know what I'm trying to say here? You guys awake this morning? Okay. Let me make sure that, make sure that you're with me. Um, so that's, that's uh, verse 21. Verse 22, And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And now we have a shift here, and we're coming to where the, the, the majority of, of this sermon is going to come out of verse 23. We have a shift in verse 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self or lose or forfeit 
his own soul. So we have this shift that takes place in, in verse 23. Uh, there's, there's, there's been this very private meeting, going back to verse 18, with the disciples uh, who are in private. Uh, Luke lets us know this, and they're praying. But then in verse 23, then he says to them all. So he, he, here's specific things that were happening, specific to the first century, but now here is something for everyone, not just for the disciples, not just those on the inner circle, not just those in the first century, but this is for us. This is for us to hear today especially. Jesus is speaking to you and to me in verse 23. And he is essentially saying, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a Christian, this is what he's saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is a familiar passage. It is in several of the Gospels in a little different form. Let's look at verse 24, and then, and then I'll come to these three demands. Uh, verse 24, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me or for my sake will save it. And it's good for us to think about what, what he's actually saying here. What he's saying is, whoever wants to save his life, what is he, he's talking about here our selfish orientation of life. Uh, we, we, are, we are born with, with tendencies to, to live for ourselves, with pride, with selfishness. And what this passage is saying is whoever wants to save that life in this world is going to lose his soul or his life eternally. But whoever loses that basic selfish orientation of life for the sake of an outrageous love for what I have done for you or what I'm going to do for you at the cross in the context of Luke 9, then that person will save his life. He will find life, what it is all about. The Bible tells us that this world is not our home, that we are aliens and strangers. And so if we want to really find out what life is going to be about, we are going to be thinking about eternity. And we are going to lose our selfishness. We are going to lose um, that orientation of life that we are all born with naturally. So three demands of the gospel, and all of three of these come out of verse 23. And the first one is that the gospel demands surrender. The gospel demands surrender. And I get this from the first part of, of, of verse 23 where Jesus is speaking. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. We have to def deny that selfish orientation that manifests itself in all kinds of different ways because we're all different people. Um, some of us are shy. Some of us are friendly. Some of us are... You know, we, we have all kinds of different personalities, but we all have a tendency to live for ourselves. And we must deny that. We must deny ourselves. The gospel demands that we surrender that life to him. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, what all of his disciples must learn is that to be a follower of Jesus entails a painful renunciation of self-interest and a wholehearted turn to Jesus' interests. It, it's painful. Because we're naturally inclined to live for certain things and go in a certain direction and live for ourselves. And the Bible is saying you have to surrender this completely and totally and absolutely. Now, I don't know if any of you are, are, are like me, but one of the challenges that we have is that we surrender not unconditionally to the Lord. Um, any of you ever uh, said something like this? Maybe you didn't say it out loud. You probably didn't say it at a Bible study or at a prayer meeting. But in the quietness of your own prayer closet, you said, you know, Lord, if you would do this, 
then I would certainly follow you more boldly. I would certainly go here. Uh, if, if you would do this, and, and what we're asking may not even be selfish. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe keeping a marriage together. It may be, I mean, it may be anything. But, but we often have this orientation, if you will do this, Lord, then, then I will, will do that. Do I have anybody here this morning that, that has thought like that in their life? A few of us, a few of us have. Uh, there's a few people that are awake and, and with me this morning. The gospel demands complete and total surrender of our lives. And this is one of the things that he wants to remind us of this morning. If we are going to be an indiv- individuals and in a congregation that has crazy love for him, we need to have a complete and total surrender. Um, these last uh, couple weeks, I have been really enjoying reading a particular book that was on the New York Times bestseller. And I can't remember the last time I read a book that was on the New York Times bestseller uh, list. And uh, this book was a story of a, a World War II hero and an uh, Olympian, a man who lived uh, a, an amazing life. His name is uh, Louis Zamperini. And uh, not only was he in the uh, 36 Olympics and shook Adolf Hitler's hand and and just had an amazing life. But in World War II, he was shot down uh, over the Pacific. Three survived the crash initially. One of them died from starvation. So there's two men on a raft for 38 days in the Pacific Ocean. Floated 2,000 miles to, uh, what were those islands? Uh, I forget the name. It floated 2,000 miles to the Marshall Islands. And during that time, he cried out to the Lord, many times. And the kinds of prayers that he cried out to the Lord were, Lord, if you will do this, then I will follow you. The, the, the hardest time that they had was, uh, was they had a period of about eight days where they had no water. They, they had uh, constructed these little rain catches um, out of material of one of the rafts that didn't uh, survive the crash. And so that's how they survived, was, was making these little uh, funnels and they would paddle to when they saw a storm, they would paddle toward the storm and collect rainwater. And that's how they lived. And for about eight days, there was no rain. And they were very near death. Their, their body weights are about half of what they were. And they are, they are crying out to the Lord. And this actually happened several times. And they would say, Lord, if you would do this, then we will, then we will do that. The war ends. He comes back like so many, married struggles, fights, just goes through all these times. It isn't until much later in his life that he really comes to a place of complete and total surrender. And, and maybe your life has, is, is something like his. Maybe you've been living your life in such a way where you've kind of been, been, been saying, Lord, I, I'll follow you if, if, if this. But what, what Jesus is looking for is a complete and total denial of ourselves and our orientation and a complete and absolute surrender. And it's very important that we get there in our lives at some point. Hopefully you've already been there, and today is just a renewal, just a reminder. But maybe today is the day of salvation for you. Maybe you've never really done that. Maybe you've never really said, my life is totally and completely yours. Whatever you want to do with it, I'm going to give it to you, Lord. It is the same spirit that we uh, read of in the, in the book of Ruth, where Ruth is, is speaking to Naomi, not to, uh, to the Lord directly, but she says, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. I will, I will go anywhere. I will do anything. That is what the Lord is looking for us in our own settings, in our own situations in life. 
He's looking for us to abandon self, to deny ourselves, and to completely and totally identify with Him. Galatians 2.20 is a passage that, that coordinates with this. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There was this orientation. There was this Mike Ernst who at one point, uh, my life was, was not oriented toward God at all. Uh, as I think about my own life and, and what my orientation was, I, I probably boil it down to maybe four things. Um, and not in any particular order. Uh, girls, cars, dollars, and probably being liked. Wanting people to like me. That, that, that was pretty much the orientation of my life. And there was a point in my life where, where that changed. Where I came to know God. Where I was born again. And, and instead of trying to find my way through these kinds of things, I became a, a, a new person. I became someone who loved Jesus Christ. Now, those things, as we all know, still rear their head in our lives. And we have to fight this battle of sin. There's, there's a time in the future where, where those things will be gone completely. And, and that's what the Bible describes as our, as our home. You know, as, as I read the Bible more and more, I, I, my, the Lord, opened my, Lord opened my, opens my eyes to, to the reality of eternity more and more. Uh, I love how the Bible describes death as sleep. You know, that's one of the things that hasn't worked its way into our vocabulary. So much of, of what's in the Bible has worked its way into our language. But when people die, we don't usually describe them as having gone to sleep. The Bible does. Because there is a time when we will really live, where we will be in the presence of God, and these things won't be raising their heads. So if we are going to live passionate, crazy love for God, if we're going to have that, we have to deny that orientation completely, and then we have to fight it throughout our lives. Now, another problem is that sometimes we kind of fake it. And so we maybe look like we've experienced this transformation. And this is one of the the most really terrifying things in the Bible. Because we read about people who are deceived. Who they have some kind of religious experience and they were living under this one orientation and now they're living under this other orientation, but they haven't really come to love God. They're doing godly things. It may mean that we've surrendered, but it may also mean that we have Christianized our lusts. That we have Christianized our lusts. This is the case, I think. We read about this in the Bible in, in Matthew 7 and a couple other places. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This this, this should drive us to our knees. So this is saying there are people who were living in this orientation. They've shifted to another orientation, one that involves exorcism and miraculous healings and prophesying, but they never knew him. It wasn't that they committed some big sin and they fell away. It's that they never knew him. They have been and always were evil doers. So we have to be careful that we love God. And I think, you know, how do we read a passage like this and not come away uh, thinking, am I, am I in that category? And I think we come away, uh, what, what we have to preach to ourselves is if, if, if we were before the Lord and we're giving a defense uh, for, uh, we're giving a defense to him, our defense is not going to be this is what I did, God. 
this, this, this is what I did. It is going to be a, a, a falling on our faces and thanking God for saving us because of what he did. We are going to be boasting in what he did, not in what we did. Is that right? You guys awake? Okay, just checking. So the gospel demands surrender. Let's move on to uh, the second, second point I want to bring out of verse 23. The gospel demands surrender if we're going to have lives of love, of radical, crazy love for him. A second thing the gospel demands is suffering well or suffering for the glory of God. If we come back to the passage here in verse 23, Jesus is talking to all of us. He says, if anyone wants to be a believer, wants to be a disciple, wants to come after me, he must deny himself. That's where I got this first point of surrender. And then the second thing he says, must take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, and, and just that second part, take up his cross daily. That's where I'm getting the second part. The gospel demands suffering well. Taking up our cross. Taking up our cross. Now what does this mean to take up our crosses daily? And I want to say that it really means kind of two things. The first thing uh, that a, a person reading this in the context of the first century in the Roman Empire w- would think about execution by crucifixion and a willingness to die or be martyred for the gospel. It relates to that first point of complete and total surrender. So this would be on the mind of a reader, that, that anyone who would come after me must deny himself and he must be willing to, to, to die and suffer for my sake, in a literal sense on the cross. That, that is a, a, a way and, and perhaps a primary way this would be read in the first century. Now we know that very few of us, um, Peter was, the other apostles were, but very few of us are going to be called to literally die for our faith or even to be persecuted in some way for our faith. But the gospel calls us all to suffer. If we bring in James 1, consider it joy when you encounter uh, trials of various kinds. If we bring in the passage in Acts, it says through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. If we are going to have a passionate love for Jesus Christ and maintain this relationship at a place where we are, we are gaining momentum, where we are moving forward, where we are becoming more and more in love with him and more and more passionate for him and taking more and more risks for him, we are going to have to be able to suffer well. We're going to be be able to have to be able to worship him and praise him and serve him even through whatever kinds of trials or suffering that comes into our lives, whether that be physical illness, whether that brings whether that means relational breakdowns, uh, whether that means uh, a marriage that that isn't what I wanted it to be, whatever that might mean. If we are going to going to love him, we're going to be able to have to work through those things and praise him and serve him. One thing that this does not mean to take up our cross is that God wants us to seek out suffering or that suffering is somehow a way to attain a high level of spirituality. This is called asceticism. Asceticism is this false doctrine that through renunciation of worldly pleasures, it is possible to achieve a high spiritual state. And we see, I don't see people really doing this today, but I do see its influence around today. Uh, we, we read, uh, I've read about Martin Luther and maybe you've heard the stories where he would go out in the snow and sleep in Germany in the wintertime in the snow with you know, no blankets and things to try to, to attain this high spiritual state. And what he found was that not only did he not achieve a high spiritual state, it didn't do anything for him. It just made him miserable. It just made him terrible. And that is not what this passage is saying, and I don't think any of us actually seek that out. But sometimes we can have the thought when things are going well in life that somehow maybe I'm not as spiritual as somebody who's, who's really suffering. Uh, that, I've, that I see regularly. And we are called to live 
with passionate love for Jesus Christ, whether things are going well and you're on the downward slope and cruising through life or whether you're just barely hanging on day to day. We are called to to live in his presence and his grace and, and to worship him. We're in either of those situations. If we're going to uh, get out of this lukewarmness and have a passionate love for Jesus Christ, we're going to have to learn uh, by his grace to suffer well no matter what life brings. I've had a very clear picture of someone who has suffered very well just in recent years um, with one of my closest friends. His name is Greg. He's uh, here pictured in between my boys uh, back in August. This is at Spring Creek Barbecue in uh, Texas. And uh, if I start salivating here, I'm looking to see what time it is. This is a good barbecue place where we were here uh, back in August. My friend Greg was the best man at my wedding. Um, We came to know the Lord together. We grew up in Jesus together. And Greg has had massive, massive suffering in his life. The last eight years, he has been fighting uh, colon cancer that metastasized and went to his liver, went to his lungs, ended up going throughout his whole body. And just a couple weeks ago, I went to Dallas and spoke at his memorial service as he went to be with the Lord my age on uh, January 17th. He went to be with Jesus. But Greg was a man who suffered well. He is a man who served Christ as he went through chemo and chemo and chemo and chemo and thinking he just has a few months and he has another year. And, and he went through this for about eight years until just this past January. Um, last summer, summer of '09, give you a picture of how he suffered well. I went, uh, went to go visit him, just time alone, just he and I, summer of 09, and we drove, I flew into Dallas, and we drove from Dallas down to Houston where he was having his uh, chemo treatments and all this. And on my mind and heart is just his, his suffering and, and how this is going to go and what the scans are going to show and whether we're going to get news. And I'm just, and we're driving down there, and, and Greg's, you know, thinking about me. And he's asking me how my life is going. And he's, he's basically being a wise counselor. He's, he's about the only one I know who's, who's kind of known my whole life since I've, come, since I've had this transformation, since I've had this orientation shift back here. Greg's about the only guy who's been with me. He's with the Lord now, but the only guy who's been with me through all that time. And so he's ministering to me. We finally get to Houston. Again, cancer's on my mind. And he's like, hey, we're, uh, we're going to a pub. Now, I'm... You know, there's nothing wrong with Christians going to pubs, but that's not, not uh, that, that was a little, little different for me. And so we, we show up to this pub, and uh, he gets a guitar out of his trunk, and it's open mic. And he's going to sing. And there's all kinds of serious musicians there. We're in this place. He's bald. He's not looking good. He's, he's going down for chemo treatments and, um, and scans and this sort. We're sitting in this pub, and he sings these silly songs that he wrote. One of them was a parody on Costco about how we, how we go and buy all these huge quantities of things that we, that we don't need. He just, he, he, he just sang these silly songs. But at the end of those silly songs, he spoke about Christ and spoke about what he was doing. I, you know, it's right around the corner from M.D. Anderson, and that's a really well-known place there. And he's like, this is what I'm here for. And he didn't, like, go through the whole gospel, but he spoke about Christ and we sat in this pub, and people came up to us, and a few of them wanted to talk about his guitar and music, but you know what people came and talked to us about in this pub? They came and talked to us about Jesus. He is a man who suffered well. 
Most of us are not going to have cancer and suffer through chemo for eight years when you're 42 years old. But if we do, if we have had this transformation, if, if our orientation has shifted and we love Jesus Christ, he will see us through that and he will help us to suffer well. I want to share with you a little bit of the correspondence I uh, had from him back in 2007. He, he wrote this. And, and the, context, the context of this was discussions that we were having about his, his life was just so full of suffering. Not just his cancer. He, he was an amputee. He had cancer in high school and, and had his above-the-knee amputee back in, in junior high and high school. His marriage was, was, was very hard for him. So we're having these discussions, and, and I just want to share with you some of the things that he wrote. This was in 2007. He wrote, I can only consider with faith that, that his plan is not mine, and his plan is perfect. Perhaps my own pride would have destroyed me had I not been humbled by continued and manifold troubles. I do not know. Sometimes when I think of the strong physical bodies God has given people like you and Michelle, I wonder what I would do with the same. I'm immediately reminded, though, of Scripture that teaches that he lays out our days for us and calls each of us to a different path with different gifts. And that I have plenty to work on and plenty far to go before pretending that the Lord needs me. Many people tell me often they look to me and see the gospel at work and learn from it and that I'm a big influence to them. I hope they aren't just saying that to make me feel good. In any case, I hadn't planned on this method of teaching. He hadn't planned on being in, on, on suffering well for Christ's sake and helping people like me and everyone else that he really came into contact in these last eight years as he suffered. If we are going to live lives that are increasingly taking risks for God, if we are going to love him, we must have a complete and total surrender of our lives and we must suffer well. When, when stuff comes into our lives, we need to be able to preach to ourselves that, that this is small and God is big. That's how Greg lived. That's how he lived. That's how he calls us to live. I am as capable as griping and complaining as, as, as all of us here. and I've got to preach to myself that as, as God allows tough things to come into my life, that they're small and that he's big. Finally, last point this morning is that the gospel demands submission. Back to verse 23. Three things I've pulled out here. Deny ourselves. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. Suffer well. And then finally, Jesus says, follow me. And again, if we go back to the first century and we think of the context of what it means to follow Jesus, it meant that they immediately dropped their nets and they followed him. Their lives changed from the moment, those original 12. And he is looking for our lives to change as well, completely, not necessarily leaving our vocations or leaving our households or traveling, but he's looking for this complete and total surrender. And how do we do it? If, if, what, what does this really mean uh, to follow uh, him, to submit to him? What does this really mean for you and I? I would just summarize it by saying what it really means is that we are called to have our lives saturated with the Bible, not with television or movies or the other kinds of things that compete for our 
our brain time, but where our lives are to be saturated with His Word, and then we are called to obey this Word. We are called to obey it. That's what it looks like for us today to follow Him. They dropped His nets, and they followed Him. We are to repent of our sins, surrender completely, and, and, and pursue Him through His Word and obedience to what the Scriptures say. I'll close with this. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. If we love him, we will obey his teaching. We will saturate ourselves with the truth of the Bible, and it will work its way out in risk-taking, in joy, and in a kind of life that is different from our unbelieving neighbors, a kind of life that shows that we have an amazing, crazy love for Jesus. Let's pray.